Welcome, everybody, to Season 1, Episode 4 of the Scary Savannah and Beyond Podcast. I'm your host, Britt, and with me, as always, is my lovely wife, Crystal. How are you doing, Crystal? I'm great. I'm a little jet-lagged from our Vegas trip, but other than that, I'm great. Yes, we went to Vegas, and I discovered the joys of gambling this time. Well, a new gambling habit. You've already been into it, but this time you discovered craps. Yes, I, I already have a crippling gambling <laughs> habit, and it's so good we don't have slot machines on Tybee Island, or we would be broke pretty much within the hour from when they installed them. But no, craps is a fun game, and I've already learned all about it. And um, she's she, actually already ordered a craps table and dice and chips I so did. we can practice. I did. I got it on the black market, and these guys say they're going to get it right out of one of the casinos. They said the less questions I ask, the better. So uh, I'm looking forward for the delivery. I'm just hoping it's not a bunch of guys in black suits. <laughs> I do, too. <laughs> yeah, because we might have Ted Binion show up. And that would be extra <laughs> scary since he's dead. So you can give us a call if you have anything that you'd like to ask about or you have a story idea or any corrections. As we said before, we're open to that for sure. Our telephone number is 912-406-2899. Once again, that's 912-406-2899. You can find us on the web at www.scarysavannahandbeyond.com or www.scarysavannah.net. We are on social media at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. All three use the username at Scary Savannah. And I would be remiss if I did not mention that we now have a Patreon page and we would love for you to go check it out. It's patreon.com forward slash Scary Savannah. We uh, stopped by the Zach Bagans Haunted Museum, didn't we? We did. It was quite interesting. We enjoyed it. It's, uh, I would definitely say that it's a very spooky place to go. It's cram-packed full of haunted artifacts, uh, mementos from serial killers. They literally have a couple of John Wayne Gacy's paintings in yeah, this Yeah, they had Ted Bundy's kill kit. They had um, Charles Manson's death um shroud or, or the uh, jacket he gown, wore when they death put him gown. to death. They had Richard Ramirez's shirt that he wore at his trial, which I was faintly familiar with him, but when I read some of his sayings that they had put on the wall behind him, I was like, this guy was one of the sickest people I've ever heard of. Yeah, and they had Jack Kevorkian's van where yes. he would use to kill Yeah, patients. where he would euthanize people, and uh, it was in a room by itself, and it had his rig set up in it that he would use, and it's it, the whole time we're going through this place. Crystal felt a an oppressive presence or yeah, spirit I just crushing felt her like the whole time. Weight on me, like it was so weird. I've never felt that in a building before, but it's definitely haunted. Yeah, because when we went through the Sorrel Weed House, she felt something, but not anything yeah. like what she felt. In this yeah, place. it was like that, but multiplied by a hundred. Yeah, and the house that he actually houses this museum in is has its own haunted history itself. Uh, supposedly a child died there, I believe, from the original owners is what they had said. Well, I think he died before they moved in, but he followed them there and would be running around the house and yeah. stuff. And it got worse from there. That wasn't the only thing. That's just the introductory spirit, you know, that was included. <laughs> so the actually took us down as part of the tour into the basement where they said they 
had satanic rituals took place. Yeah, there was a pentagram on the floor. It was really weird. Yeah, if you've ever watched uh, Zach Bagan's Haunted Museum on whatever network it comes on, the very intro shows it going down a hallway. That hallway is the hallway you're walking through to get to the room in the basement. And it was unsettling. I mean, like I said, I didn't feel anything there. So I'm just either oblivious, which is probably more likely, or just not as sensitive to things like that as Crystal is. But going in that room did make me feel uncomfortable. There were so many items in that house, like with spirits attached to them, you just can't help but be like, I don't know, you just, I can't believe you felt nothing. I can't believe you felt nothing. When I say I didn't feel anything, I was expecting like a sensation or feeling like something was there with me or touching me. Now, I, I felt uneasy. I did yeah. when I was in there. It, it was not a comfortable experience, although it was very interesting. I, I will say this. If you are scared of clowns, definitely do not go to this museum. And if your fear of clowns stems from the movie Poltergeist, even more so a warning, don't go to this museum. <laughs> yeah, they had the actual clown that was in the little boy's bedroom that tried to kill him. Yeah, and you don't even see it coming. You're walking down the hallways. They have a few jump scares in there. I'm not going to ruin it for you and tell you where it is. It's not, it's, it's not gimmicky. That, that's yeah. just part of the certain section because each of these uh, hotel, well, hotel haunted museums, rooms are basically themed. So he'll have a serial killer room. He'll have a room based around dolls. He'll have a room based around other things. Part of this was a circus area. And it's not just haunted stuff. Some of it's oddities, too. So Yeah, I really like the guy who used a drill and drilled into his nose. That was almost as creepy as the way... I said it. I said creepy. <laughs> it's almost as creepy as the way he used big old fish hooks and put oh, them in gosh. his eyelids and suspended and a bucket swung of water. the bucket back and forth like a with paint his can. eyelids. A paint can full of water. I couldn't hardly look at it. It made me uncomfortable, but that was a whole different kind of uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, that was so weird. But if you go there, it's worth going. And actually, it was so good that we're going to try to probably do at least, you know, a mini episode about it to talk about it and give more detail on the things we saw. Because if you're in Vegas and you don't lose all your money on craps day one, not saying I did, not saying I didn't, <laughs> make sure you get yourself tickets to go to it's the haunted It's definitely Museum. worth the money and you get at least a two-hour guided tour. Yes. I did not feel cheated from no. our from our visit. I felt like we got our money's worth. Everything's out. really well done. It's top notch. It is. So that brings us to the portion of our show where Crystal's going to take the reins. This week, we'll be taking a look at one of my favorite murder stories. It's the intriguing case of Ann Jett Lyles, better known as the Black Widow of Macon. Oh, man. That sounds like it could be a song, sort of like the uh, the Vamp of Savannah. Hard-hearted Hannah. Yeah, but I bet this woman was probably way worse than, yes, she was. than that namesake. And Jet was described as a striking woman. She was tall and prematurely gray, which gave her a glamorous 1950s platinum blonde look. Oh, wow. I, when I hear that, all I see is a, a character from the Jetsons. I don't know why. It's, it's all I see in my mind. Is, <laughs> she didn't is, look like she was from the Jetsons. <laughs> I don't know why. I'm just You've seeing seen her, her picture. I know, but I just see like a robot maid. With a platinum blonde hairdo. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Apparently, you didn't watch the Jetsons very much. No, I actually did not. I hated Hanna-Barbera. Okay, so let's get back to the 1950s in the South. Macon, Georgia had a population of around 70,000 people at the time. Okay, that's a pretty big city for that time. 
right? It is, but it retained a small town feel. Okay. The antebellum architecture, which had been spared by Sherman on his march to the sea, remained and created a welcoming downtown where everyone gathered to shop, eat, and work. Okay. So it's like Mayberry. Basically. Except like a little times, bigger. times 20, maybe. So in the 1950s, rhythm and blues was huge, and anybody who was anybody came through Macon to perform. That's right, Daddy-o. Otis Redding moved to Macon when he was just two years old. You know who that is, right? I know, man. He was already a musician at age two. No, but he later became a famous musician. Okay. Sitting on the dock of the bay. Okay, yeah. Yeah, we listen to that when we're sitting on the beach. We do. A man named Richard Pennyman, who is better known as Little Richard, was born and raised in Macon. Richard Pennyman. We're going to play a little clip about him now. A local car hop named Richard Pennyman started singing to customers at the Pig and Whistle drive-in. There was an old man named Ingram that, that ran the Pig and Whistle, and supposedly, the story has it, that Richard would wait cars over there, and he would sing uh, to the customers. And Mr. Ingram supposedly told him one day, either quit singing and start working or quit working and start singing. He chose the latter. And as little Richard, it wasn't long before he had the whole country screaming, good golly, Miss Molly. So I guess his boss gave him some good advice, huh? I would imagine so. I mean, if you're a big fan of, you know, little Richard. I think it worked out for him. I'm sure it did. So with all the popularity of R&B and Macon, it's now home to the Georgia Music Hall of Fame. Did you know that? I actually did not know that. And that's weird. I mean, we have friends from Macon. and I don't remember them ever mentioning that to us. I know. It'd be a neat place to visit. Yeah. Besides music, there was an annual Cherry Blossom Festival that still continues to this day. Children enjoyed downtown Macon on the weekends. Okay. Here's a clip from two longtime residents, Wayne Wise and David Green, describing their childhood in Macon. Our parents would give us a dollar on Saturday and we'd go to town. You could ride the bus to town for a nickel, go to the movie for a dime, get a hamburger dinner for 50 cents and spend the day downtown, go back home. Charlie Wood Sporting Goods. Um, that was a big deal. We would always go to Charlie Woods just to see what they had new and see the new gloves and the footballs and the bats and uh, all the other guns that they had. And downstairs, they had a toy department. He had planes and different uh, models hanging all over the ceiling. And, uh, and sometimes, if we had money, we'd buy something. The making sounds pretty idyllic at the time, wouldn't you think? I'm still sticking with the Mayberry vibes. Yeah, that's probably what it was like. One more important draw of downtown Macon was, of course, dining. And this is where Ann Jett comes in. Okay. She's described as an extrovert. I'm always suspicious of extroverts, aren't Me you? Me too. They just, you can't trust people that are friendly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. <laughs> she was gracious, kind, courteous, and charismatic. All those things you expect from somebody who's going to try to take money out of your pocket. Or kill you. Oh, okay. <laughs> sure. She was known to always get what she wanted, usually through manipulation and charm. Okay, that, that sounds like somebody that would have those traits, yeah. She was born in 1925 in Macon, and she was the only daughter of a local grocer. In 1947, she married Benjamin Lyles, and they quickly welcomed their first daughter, Marcia. Okay, still Santa Mayberry-esque here. I'm assuming this is going to take a dark turn soon. It will. Ben's family owned Lyle's Restaurant downtown, and Anjette joined the family working in the restaurant alongside her new mother-in-law, Julia. Okay. Anjette quickly became a favorite of the patrons, including what was known at the time, the One O'Clock Club. 
Sounds like a casino. (laughs) These were the businessmen and local attorneys and judges that would frequent the restaurant at lunchtime. Okay. So, basically, mafioso. (laughs) No, these were good guys. Not mafioso. Still Mayberry. Okay. The restaurant featured popular Southern fare, but Anjette was the real draw. Okay. Was it because of her personality? It said that she would hug everyone's neck and sit and chat with the patrons. This all sounds great, right? What could go wrong What could possibly go wrong with this? Well, Ben, when he was in the war, he had contracted rheumatic fever, which left him disabled. Okay. So he was drawing a pension from the government. Okay. I can already feel money being involved here now. And he was quite fond of drinking and going out late. As you do. So one day, without her knowledge, he sells the family restaurant for $2,500. Wow. That's like. $2,502 in today's money, right? (laughs) I'm sure it was a little more than that, but it's still not what it it was worth. It was worth a quarter at the time. I don't know. And this is something that Anjette could not forget. That would be sort of a hard thing to just get over, I imagine. Shortly after the birth of their second daughter, Carla, in 1952, Ben became violently ill. Mm. He had a severe nosebleed, abdominal pain, and painful swelling in his hands and feet. Are these symptoms of, what would you say, rheumatic fever? No. Okay. But the doctors didn't know what it was. He was taken to Parkview Hospital where Anjette was attentive at his bedside day and night. Okay, like a good wife. She would bring him food. Or husband. Yes. She would bring him food, not wanting him to have to eat the hospital food. The doctors couldn't agree on a diagnosis. And when he did die a few days later... The cause of death was ruled encephalitis. What is encephalitis? I believe it's swelling of the brain. That sounds extreme. Or fluid in the brain, something like that. But yeah, they really weren't sure. Okay. So Must have been that good hospital. Oh, he didn't eat the hospital food. No, he ate the food prepared by his wife. Okay. Now, poor Anjette is now a widow with two small children at only 26 years old. However, she was determined to make the best of her bad luck. She found work in another local restaurant and saved her money until she had enough money to buy back the restaurant her husband had sold. Okay. She renamed it Anjet's Restaurant, and it quickly became the most popular gathering spot once again. All right. Well, good for her. One day, an airline pilot named Buddy Gabbard stopped in for lunch and was so smitten with Anjet, he told her he was going to marry her. Just because he stopped in to eat lunch? That's how charismatic she was. And I told you she had that blonde, well, it was really gray, but it came across as a platinum blonde. Platinum. Yeah. Jetsons. And so she's only 26 and she's got this platinum hair and she's charismatic and beautiful. And so, yeah, he said he was going to marry her and he did. Okay. So it looks like things are looking up for Anjet, right? It sounds like it is. Unfortunately, I knew there was going to be an unfortunately here somewhere. Not long into the marriage, Buddy went to Parkview Hospital for a minor wrist operation. Okay. But soon after, he became violently ill as well. I'm feeling a a pattern. A trend. A trend. He developed a horrible weeping skin rash. From a wrist operation. Well, it was unrelated. Oh, okay. But they didn't know what it was. He was so sick, he was begging for someone to kill him. Wow. His condition didn't improve, and he died on December 2nd, 1955. That's awful. So, Anja is now a widow for the second time in three years. She remains undeterred, though. Sounds like she's going through a string of bad luck here. Yeah. So, she uses the insurance money she collected from her husband's death and buys a brand new convertible and a new house. Well, you got to console yourself somehow, right? She did. (laughs) Apparently. So, she was quite the sight riding down the road in her Cadillac. 
Was it her, Cadillac? Yeah, it was a convertible Cadillac with her blonde hair. And, with her new house. Yep. So, once again, things seem to be looking up for Anjette. So, she's swinging up and down here. She changes her last name back to Lyles. I guess she liked that better. Okay. And she invites her former mother-in-law, Julia Lyles, to live with her in her new house to help raise the girls. Now, let me guess. Julia needed to go to the hospital. <laughs> well, first she works with Anjette in the restaurant, and everyone's happy, and things are going well, but someone else gets sick. Who do you think it is? I'm going to be really adventurous here and go with Julia. It is. So, in 1957, Julia is admitted uh, once again to Parkview Hospital. Oh, no, not Parkview. I'm getting suspicious They're of someone. They're killing patients <laughs> left and right. I come in, what's wrong, sir? I've got a slight headache. Oh, it seems that your symptoms mean you're dead. So poor Julia suffers for a whole month under Anjette's watchful eye. Just like her husband's before, Anjette stays at her mother-in-law's side, bringing her food from the restaurant. How thoughtful. She never recovers, though, and dies in September of 1957. Well, she was elderly, though, right? She was, so it wasn't really out of the ordinary. Like okay. It wasn't suspicious. But while her mother-in-law had been living with her, Anjette had discovered a bank book showing that Julia had quite a bit of money saved up. Uh-oh, I'm feeling some motive and popping up here. Some estimates were it was around $60,000. Wow. 60200 in today's money, right? <laughs> I'm sure it's a lot more than that. <laughs> but yeah, in 1957, $60,000, that's a oh, good I bit of money. it's probably uh, quite a bit. And Anjette had been trying to convince Julia to make a will, but she refused. Okay. But shortly after her death, Anjette produces a will. I guess she just, in her elderly state, forgot she had uh, created such this document. <laughs> the will named Julia's other son, Joseph, and Anjette's daughters as the beneficiaries. Okay. And who do you think was named the executor of this will? This is going to be Anjette, right? Exactly. Because that means she's the one that takes care of the distribution of the funds and such. Yeah, she's right? in charge of the girl's money, so she continues her lavish lifestyle. Okay. Once again, Anjette is forced to move forward after this third tragedy in her young life. Now, it's March of 1958, so less than a year after Julia's death. And this time, nine-year-old Marsha becomes sick. Remember oh. her first daughter? Oh, no. She has a fever of 106 degrees. I don't like where this is going. Yeah, that's a really high fever. Yeah. So, Anjette takes her daughter to Parkview Hospital. Oh, I think over. I'd stop taking them there if it it's were me. It's over. So, she, um, she's suffering quite a bit for a couple of weeks. She's hallucinating and screaming that she feels bugs crawling on her. Wow. It's said that Anjette just laughed at the girl instead of comforting her. Why in the world would she do that? <laughs> she's a Who sicko, I guess. Well, obviously, she's a serial killer here, I'm guessing. Well, we'll find out. So, um, you remember Julia, her mother-in-law. Well, she had a sister named Nora Bagley, okay. and she begins receiving anonymous letters. Okay. One of them says, please come at once. She's getting the same dose as the others. Please come at once. Okay. What in the world does that mean? Uh, we'll find that out later. We'll come back to that. Okay. Doctors weren't sure what was wrong with her, but they didn't really expect her to die. I mean, she was only nine years old, and they figured they'd be able to treat it. Even though it sounded like she was on a bad acid trip. Yeah. But Anjette, however, predicted she was going to die and even bought a coffin and got rid of some of her clothes and toys. Well, it sounds like she maybe had some information others did not. Her prediction did come true, and on Good Friday, April 4th, 1958, Marcia died. That's a shame. She was buried on Easter Sunday. 
By this time, rumors were beginning to circulate. The deaths of the two husbands and the mother-in-law could sort of be explained, but how could a healthy nine-year-old get sick and die so suddenly? That that would be a hard, a hard sell. The medical examiner was highly suspicious, and he took samples of Marsha's lungs, liver, and kidneys, and a lock of her hair, and sent them to the Georgia State Crime Lab in Atlanta. He demanded a meeting with Anjette to discuss Marsha's death. Okay. So she brings her seven-year-old daughter, Carla, with her to this meeting, and has her explain what happened to poor Marsha. Okay, so what happened? She said that her and her sister and two friends were playing hospital and that they had given each other medicine. In quotation marks there, right? Yes, medicine. medicine. Yes. So at which point, Anjette produces a bottle of taro ant poison. Okay, I don't know a lot about serial killers and crime, but I do know that ant poison was a favorite poison for a lot of people. Yes, at that time, the main ingredient was arsenic. Okay. I don't think they use that anymore. It's probably a lot harder to get. But at the time, it was really easy. You could just walk into the drugstore and buy a bottle of arsenic. You could probably labeled, still do that in Honduras. Labeled tarot and poison. I did go to Honduras one time, and you could. it's amazing. You walk into one of their pharmacies there, and you could probably buy cocaine if you wanted to. <laughs> so, once the test came back, unsurprisingly, Marsha's tissues tested positive for arsenic. Okay. So, she's making this little girl her unwitting accomplice sounds like yeah she's trying to save her skin at this point because she knows they're on to her okay and armed with this information the bodies of ben lyles buddy gabbert and julia lyles are exhumed i'm just gonna take a guess here and say they probably all showed traces of arsenic she's scrambling here so all three tested positive for traces of arsenic Mm. so during this time Anjette checks herself into the parkview hospital (laughs) with abdominal pain and swollen extremities sound familiar it sounds somewhat familiar. I don't know where it might be causing me to think there's a trend, but it sounds like the seven-year-old's trying to knock off everybody <laughs> is what I'm thinking here. Yeah, it was Carla. So a friend of Anjette Lyles, Judge Taylor Phillips, who at the time was a young lawyer, told Anjette to get a lawyer and not say anything. Good advice. She asked him to represent her, and this was his response. We're going to play a clip. I told her, I said, Anjette, you need to get a lawyer before you do anything. Just uh, don't make any statements. Just get yourself a lawyer. And she said, well, would you represent me in this? And I said, no, I won't. She said, why not? I said, well, I'm afraid I believe you're guilty as homemade sin, and I just don't want to participate in it at all. So you can see even some of her friends thought she was guilty at this point. It sounds like he was pretty confident. (laughs) Yeah. So on May 6, 1958, Bibb County Sheriff's deputies arrested her at Parkview Hospital. They searched her house and found two hidden bottles of tarot ant poison. No surprise. But more interestingly, they found a bunch of items used in voodoo. Oh, that's definitely taking a weird left turn. (laughs) Yeah. There were candles, powders, oils, charms. She had roots and other voodoo paraphernalia. She would burn the candles and talk to them, telling them what she wanted. White candles were for peace. Red candles were for love. Green candles brought luck or money. And orange candles kept people from gossiping about you. Uh Uh-oh. I bet she's got those burnt down quite a bit. (laughs) But she also had black candles. And those were burned when you wanted someone to die. Mm. So all this is highly unusual for a white woman in the suburbs. In the 1950s. In the 1950s in Georgia. Yes. 
Well, right. actually, I would say that would probably be true in pretty much any time period. Yeah, but it was a really, like, I read that there are more churches per capita in Macon than anywhere. I did not know that. That's interesting. Yeah, so it was shocking. She was known to visit palm readers or spiritual advisors, and this really shocked this God-fearing town. And now everyone who ate at Anjets was scared they were being poisoned. So people were still eating there? After yeah. all that, they're yeah, still well, like, she's in well, you know, it's, it's not that those big Those collard greens are good. Now, I've seen there are some stories that people, and it's not stories that people do this. There's this delicacy, and I think it's Japanese, and it's puffer fish. And supposedly, it's a very fine dining. But if you don't know how to prepare this fish, it's got an extremely potent toxin that will kill you very violently. The chef preparing it doesn't prepare it just right. It will literally kill you. That so just sounds like too much of a risk for fine like, dining. It really sounds like that's sort of where you're taking your situation at when you go to eat at Ann Jett's restaurant. We're not going there. Well, she was in jail, so I don't think she's poisoning anyone else. At well, point. how do you know that it wasn't seven-year-old Carla? <laughs> I don't think they let her cook. Well, how do you know? It's the 1950s. Maybe that was <laughs> Maybe her job. Maybe they did. But, like, rumors were running rampant in town. One day, a man who was an attorney just dropped dead in the middle of a courtroom, and everyone was saying he was poisoned by Anjet. Okay, so she's sort of turning into a witch here. Yeah, like. yeah so it, it's unconfirmed. It probably had nothing to do with her. So while she was being held in the county jail, and at this time, the jailer and his wife, Byrus Goings, lived in the building, and she would let Anjet come in and watch TV with her and smoke a cigarette. This is a clip of Byrus recalling her time with Anjet. My husband had to work the night shift, and I'd be lonely sitting there, and uh, I'd bring her in, let her watch television with me, and we'd have coffee, and she smoked, and uh, so she would have coffee and a cigarette or a cookie or something. Seems people were sympathetic to Anjet, even though she was accused of these horrible crimes. It must just be because she was just such a magnetic personality, I guess. Yeah, they how, just how couldn't, else? even though... They knew it was probably true. They just didn't want to believe it. I guess. Well, like most people, I think, don't want to expect the worst of people, mm. you know, even if they know what they're capable of. So the town was parted in the middle on her guilt and innocence. But jury selection was very difficult because half the town is related to her and the other half knew her. So who were they going to pick? An unpartial jury of your peers. Impartial. Right? Impartial jury of your peers. It was very hard to find. Okay. So, on October 6, 1958, her trial started with a packed courtroom expecting a salacious tale about black magic and murder. But the prosecution decided to stay away from the voodoo aspects and focus on the more tangible evidence, arsenic, and insurance money. I think that was probably smart on their part. Yeah, she did have insurance policies on all the deceased. On all the deceased. Uh-huh. And they found out that Julia's will was forged. The signature was forged. You... Are kidding. <laughs> Employees at Anjet's had seen her burning candles and talking to them on several occasions. Talking to the candles? Talking to the candles. You tell the candles what you want, apparently. Okay. And you can, like, slide a little piece of paper under them with, with your request. So and you just bribe the That's candles. how that works, yeah. Okay. Um, like I said, she would take food and drink to the victims while they were in the hospital. Employees had seen her go into the bathroom with the food and her purse. So, presumably, the poison was in her purse, and that's where she laced it. Uh-oh. So, remember those anonymous letters we talked about? Mm-hmm, I do. 
It turns out it was a cook at the restaurant who was suspicious and wrote them because she was black and it was the 1950s and she was afraid to go to the police because she feared she'd be ignored or get in trouble for accusing a white employer. Very real threat at the time, I imagine. Yeah, so if they'd taken that a little more seriously, quickly, they may have been able to save Marsha. Yeah. Well, hopefully she doesn't get anyone else. Well, she's in jail and on trial, so I don't think so. I don't know. I've seen horror movies. Somehow she's reaching out from behind her captivity. So during the trial, she was taking copious notes, and she stood up and gave an impassioned plea to the jury. And this is what she said. Gentlemen of the jury, I have not killed anyone. As for laughing at Marsha's hallucinations, she said, when I get upset, I laugh. I can't help it. I have done it all my life. Instead of crying, I laugh. That seems psychopathic And notice she said, gentlemen of the jury, were there no women on this trial? Well, um, it's 1950s Mayberry. Maybe (laughs) women weren't allowed to juror. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. Well, when she said, I have not killed anyone, I mean, really, that sold it for me. Yeah, I believed it. Yeah. So she seems unfazed by this whole thing, even though she's on trial for murder. They said she was as vivacious and bubbly as ever, even joking with um, Byrus, the jailer's wife. Someone told Byrus to take a bottle of ammonia with her in case Anjette fainted at the verdict. It was sitting on Byrus's lap, and Anjette and her were joking about it. So that seems really weird. Either she's really out there, or she really thinks she's going to get off of this rap. Yeah, she thinks that there's no way they're going to convict her. But on October 13th, 1958, the jury comes back in less than an hour. Now, that's usually not good for the defendant. It's never good. So she was found guilty and sentenced to death in the electric chair. Ooh, that's hardcore. And the f- this is the first time she cried, is when Byrus took her back to her cell. Oh. Here's Byrus recalling the moment. We went back upstairs and I put her in the cell. And I went over to her and I put my arms around her and I said, Anjette, I'm so sorry, darling. Things will, maybe things will work out. And she broke down and cried. And that was the first time that I had seen her cry. She said, I expect they're going to fry my hide. Now, that's exactly what she said. So this is the first time she'd cried during the entire trial. So this makes me think she's most likely crying for herself rather than the deaths of her family. I'm certain she doesn't care about them. Obviously, she doesn't. Since it was the 1950s, it was difficult to execute a white woman. Okay. Since no woman had ever been executed in the electric chair, and this is 1950-something, it's going to be very difficult to carry out her sentence. Yeah, that's pretty a pretty gruesome way to go out, I imagine. Yeah, so after all her appeals were exhausted, the governor at the time, Governor Ernest Vanderveer, appointed a sanity commission just weeks before her execution. They found her criminally insane. Oh, they don't put those kind of people to death, do they? They cannot. And in the hospital... Anjette studied the magic arts and told fortunes with playing cards. She told a friend, they think I'm crazy as hell, and I'm going to let them keep thinking it. Because if they don't, they're going to fry my ass. Okay. Well, if anyone fits the bill for criminally insane, based on what you've told me about her, I would say she's got to be a candidate. Yeah. So she was admitted to a mental institution where she remained until her death in 1977. And while in the hospital, she worked 
believe it or not, in the hospital kitchen. I knew you were going to say that. I was going to say <laughs> she was either volunteering at the Parkview Hospital through a prison release program, <laughs> or she's cooking everybody's dinner. Yeah, she So did. how many people died in the hospital uh, in the uh, jail? I don't know. Hopefully, no one. I'm assuming probably not. So since then, the old restaurant has been demolished. And I could not find any details on what happened to her surviving daughter, Carla, but hopefully she lived a happy, death-free life. (laughs) Yeah, that's always the goal, a death-free life. (laughs) Well, it's said that when her sister died, she was so distraught that she said she just wanted to go to heaven to be with her sister. Yeah, what a monster this woman was. That's so traumatic for little children. Yeah, what a monster. So you think the people that were around her when when they, they gave this verdict and gave her the chair... Do you think they were shocked? I think they were because they, even though they probably thought she did it, they didn't think that they'd be able to find her guilty because of who she was. Yeah. Everybody still everybody loves her. Everybody still loved her. They can't believe that she did what she did. They couldn't. And that is the fascinating story of Anjet Lyles. That is fascinating. We're going to have to go to make it and at least check it out. So this brings us to the portion of our episode, which we like to call... Layla and Coffee Talk. And this is where we detail the exploits of our two worthless dogs. <laughs> they're not worthless. Well, they're not worthless. They're all right. I like them okay. So this was Coffee's first Thanksgiving with us, and it's Layla's favorite holiday because she likes all things food. She celebrates food and all forms of food. Yes. Yeah, so she was very thankful for her turkey. And what happened was our oldest son likes the turkey leg. And he had left his plate up on the counter and coffee knocked it into the floor. And so they got into a brawl. They There's one thing you don't bring between dogs and that's food. Especially, especially turkey legs. Yeah, turkey legs. It's over at that point. <laughs> you know, they're, they're going to fight to the death over one morsel. They would fight to the death over the grease from the turkey leg. Yeah, so we were downstairs and we hear this huge commotion. So the kids are having to break up the dog fight. So we're like, we're like you know, it's not Thanksgiving unless there's a fight. Exactly. And this time it just happened to be it just happened to be the dogs. I don't think the rest of us. Not the family. No, it was the dogs. It was just the dogs. But there was no blood drawn. No, it was over quickly. Because that's happened before. (laughs) That has happened. Yeah. They both got scars all over their face from uh, food related incidents. (laughs) So other than that, it was a great Thanksgiving. Yes, it was. So thank you for tuning in to this episode of Scary Savannah and Beyond. We would once again like to just mention that you can find us on social media at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You look up the username at Scary Savannah. You can also give us a call if you'd like to talk about uh, any of these cases or have some details or corrections. Our phone number is 912-406-2899. That is 912-406-2899. And if you have any ideas for stories you'd like for us to cover, we'd also like to get that information as well. Just give us a call at that number and leave us a voicemail. We'll definitely listen to it. We may end up playing some of these voicemails on the air at some point. We also have a merch store. Oh, yes, we do. And it's got some really cool stuff on it, doesn't it? Yeah, we'll be adding more things right now. It just has some shirts and a backpack. And a hoodie. And a hoodie. Don't forget hoodies because they're the bomb. But it is on our website, correct? It is on our website. You can go to our website at scarysavannahandbeyond.com or scarysavannah.net. And there's a link for our merch store. And uh, go check that stuff out. It's pretty, pretty neat. 
So that just leaves us with one last thing, I think. Join us next time in Savannah, where the ghosts and the good times live on. Mm-hmm.